The train for Paris started without Monsieur de Charlet. Then Albertine and I took our seats in our own train, without my discovering what had become of Monsieur de Charlet and Morel. We must never quarrel any more. I beg your pardon again. Albertine said to me, alluding to the sound loop incident. We must always be nice to each other, she added intenderly. As for your friend, Saint-Loup, if you think that I am the least bit interested in him, you are quite mistaken. All that I like about him is that he seems so very fond of you. He's very good fellow, I said taking care not to attribute to Robert those imaginary excellences which I should not have failed to invent out of friendship for him had I been with anybody but Albertine. He is an excellent creature, frank, devoted, loyal, someone you can rely on in any circumstances. In saying this, I confined myself restrained by my jealousy. Uh, to speaking the truth about Saint-Luc, but what I said was indeed the truth. But it expressed itself the precisely the same terms as Madame de Villeparcis had used in speaking to me of him, when I did not yet know him, imagine him to be so different, so proud, and said to myself, people think him kind because he's a blue-blooded nobleman. In the same way, when she had said to me, he would be so pleased. I thought to myself after seeing him outside the hotel preparing to take the reins that his aunt's words had been mere social banality intended to flatter me. And I had realized afterwards that she had spoken sincerely thinking of the things that interested me of my reading and because she knew that... That was what Saint-Loup liked, as it was later to happen to me to say sincerely, sincerely to somebody who was writing a history of his ancestor, La Rochefoucauld, the author of the Maxims, and wished to consult Robert about him. He will be so pleased. It was simply that. I had learned to know him, but when I set eyes on him for the very first time, I had not supposed that an intelligence akin to my own could be enveloped in so much outward elegance of dress and attitude. By his feathers, I had judged him to be a bird of another species. It was Albertine now, who perhaps a little because Saint-Luc, out of kindness to myself, had been so called to her, said to me what I had once thought. Ah, he's as devoted as all that. I notice that people are invariably credited with all the virtues when they belong to the Faubourg Saint-Germain. And yet, the fact that Saint-Luc belonged to the Faubourg Saint-Germain was something I had never once thought of again in the course of all these years in which, stripping himself of his prestige, he had demonstrated his virtues to me. Such a change of perspective in looking at other people, more striking already in friendship than in merely social relations, is all the more striking still in love, where desire so enlarged the scale, so magnifies the proportions of the slightest signs of coldness 
that it had required far less than Saulip had shown at first sight for me to believe myself disdained at first by Albertine to imagine her friends as fabulously inhumane creatures and to ascribe Alstra's judgment when he said to me of the little band with exactly the same sentiment as Madame de Villaparis speaking of Saint-Luc. They are good girls. Simply to the indulgence people have for beauty and a certain elegance. Yet, was this not the verdict I would automatically have expressed when I heard Albertine say, in any case, whether he is devoted or not, I sincerely hope I shall never see him again. Since he's made us quarrel, we must never quarrel again. It isn't nice. Since she had seemed to desire Saint-Loup, I felt more or less cured for the time being of the idea that she cared for women, assuming that the two things were irreconcilable. And looking at Albertine's Macintosh, in which she seemed to have become another person, the tireless vagrant of rainy days, and which close-fitting malleable and grey seemed at the moment not so much intended to protect her clothes from the rain as to have been soaked by it and to be clinging to her body as though to take the imprint of her form for a sculpture. I tore off that tunic which jealousy and rapture longed for breast and drawing Albertines towards me. But won't you indolent traveller rest your head and dream your dreams upon my shoulder. I said, taking her head in my hands and showing her the wide meadows, flooded and silent, which extended in the gathering dusk to a horizon closed by the parallel chains of distant blue hills. But you ought to marry this lady, she said to me. It would make you happy, my sweet and I'm sure it would make her happy as well. I replied that the thought that I might make this woman happy had almost made me decide to marry her, when not long since I had inherited a fortune which would enable me to provide my wife with ample luxury and pleasures. I had been on the point of accepting the sacrifice of the woman I loved, intoxicated by the gratitude that I felt for Arbentine's kindness, Coming to so soon after the terrible blow she had dealt me, just as one would think nothing of promising a fortune to the waiter who pours one out a sixth glass of brandy, I told her that my wife would have a motor car and a yacht, that from that point of view, since Albertine was so fond of motoring and yachting, it was unfortunate that she was not the woman I loved, that I should have been the perfect husband for her, but that we should see we should no doubt be able to meet on friendly terms. Nevertheless, since even when we are drunk, we refrain from hailing passers-by for fear of blows, I was not guilty of the imprudence, if such it was, that I should have committed in Gilbert's time of telling her that it was she, Albertine, whom I loved. You see, I came very near to marry her, but I didn't dare to it. After all, oh, for I wouldn't have wanted to make a young woman live with anybody so sickly and troublesome as myself. But you must be mad. Anybody would be delighted to live with you. Just to look how people run after you. 
they are always talking about you at mom's burdens and in high society too, I'm told. She can't have been at all nice to you, that lady, to make you lose confidence in yourself like that. I can see what she is. She's a wicked woman. I detest her. Ah, if I were in her shoes. Not at all. She is very kind, far too kind. As for the verdurance and all the rest, I don't care a hang. Apart from the woman I love, whom in my any case I've given up, I care only for my little Albertine. She is the only person in the world who, by letting me see a great deal of her, that is, during the first few days, I added in order not to alarm her and to be able to ask anything of her during those days, can bring me a little consolation. I made only a vague allusion to the possibility of marriage, adding that it was quite impractical, since our characters were too different. Being in spite of myself, still pursued in my jealousy by the memory of San Loop's relations with the Rachel when from the Lord and of Swans with Odette, I was too inclined to believe that once I was in love, I could not be loved in return, and that pecuniary interest alone could attach a woman to me. No doubt it was foolish to judge Albertine by Odette and Rachel, but it was not her that I was afraid of, it was myself. It was the feelings that I was capable of inspiring that my jealousy made me underestimate, and from this judgment possibly Arendus sprang no doubt many of the calamities that were to befall us. Then you declined my invitation to come to Paris. My aunt wouldn't like me to live just at present. Besides, even if I can come later on, wouldn't it look rather odd? My descending on you like that. In Paris, everybody will know that I'm not your cousin. Very well, then. We can say that we are more or less engaged. It can't make any difference since you know that it isn't true. Albertine's neck, which emerged in its entirely from her nightdress was strongly built, bronzed, grainy in texture. I kissed it as purely as if I had been kissing my mother to calm a childish grief, which I did not believe that I would ever be able to eradicate from my heart. Albertine left me in order to go and dress. Already her devotion was beginning to falter. Earlier she had told me that she would not leave me for a second, and I felt sure that her resolution would not last long, since I was afraid afraid if we remained at Balbeck that that very evening in my absence she might see the blockers. Whereas now she had just told me that she wished to call at my neighbors and that she would come back and see me in the afternoon. She had not gone home the evening before. There might be letters there for her, and besides, her aunt might be anxious about her. I had replied, If that's all, we can send the lift boy to tell your aunt that you are here and to pick up your letters. And anxious to appear amenable, but annoyed at being tied down, she had frowned for a moment and then at once very sweetly had said, All right. And I had send the lift boy. Albertine had not been out of the room a moment before the boy came and tapped gently on my door. I could not believe that. While I was talking to Albertine, he had had time to go to Mainville and back. He came now to tell me that Albertine had written a note to her aunt and that she could 
if I wished to come to Paris that very day. It was unfortunate that she had given him this message orally, for already despite the early hour, the manager was about and came to me in a great state to ask me whether there was anything wrong, whether I was really leaving, whether I could not stay just a few days longer. The wind that day being rather frightened, frightful. I did not wish to explain to him that at all costs I wanted Albertine to be out of Balbec before the hour at which the bloggers took the air, especially since Andrea, who alone might have protected her, was not there, and that Balbec was like one of those places in which an invalid who can no longer bear it is determined, even if he should die on the journey, not to spend another night. Moreover, I should have to struggle against similar entreaties in the hotel first of all, where the eyes of Marie Gineste and Celeste Alabert were red. Marie, indeed, was giving vent to the swift flowing tears of a mountain stream. Celeste, who was gentler, urged her to be calm. But Marie, having murmured the only line of poetry that she knew, here below the lilacs die. Celeste could contain herself no longer, and a flood of tears spilled over her lilac hot face. I dare say they had forgotten my existence by, the, by that evening.